Thanks so much, Brado. That was absolutely beautiful. Good morning. Welcome to church. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, oh, I'm a bit close to the step. <laughs> no, all good. Um, my name is Jess. I am, uh, I've been a member of Kingsway for about 10 years now. Went very fast. Um, and I'm one of the elders um, at the church, which is a wonderful privilege as well. Um, I attend here with my husband, Michael. You might see him up on stage from time to time doing um, music. And I have two small kids, Lucy and Teddy, who you'll see running amok out in the foyer, I'm sure. Um, I have the great privilege of being part of the team here at Kingsway. And in the past, I've uh, been up here preaching fairly regularly, but um, due to going back to work full-time and COVID and lockdowns, I actually worked out that I haven't shared up here for almost a year. Um, so I'm really excited to be back. And today, as you know, is Good Friday, uh, the day that we remember and reflect on Jesus' death. But I have to give you a bit of a content warning today. Yeah. We're going to be looking at the meaning of Jesus' death today in a bit of a different way. And it might challenge some previously held beliefs. This might be a bit confronting. But if we don't get a bit uncomfortable on today of all days, then they think we're not doing it right. Hope you agree with me. I have the mic anyway, so you'll just have to. <laughs> I do hope that at the end of this message, you will experience a deeper understanding of what Jesus was doing during his time on earth, a richer appreciation for what his death actually means, and a stronger and more intimate connection with God as we reflect on his character and his unwavering commitment to our redemption. Does that sound all right? So we're going to go on a bit of a journey, okay? But first I'm going to pray because I really need God today. All right, so if you join me in prayer. God, I thank you for this amazing opportunity to gather together as a community. I ask that today that you speak through me. This is your story. And I pray that I will represent this in a way that truly reflects who you are and what you've done and what you are doing. In your name we pray, amen. All right. Have you ever watched a film adaptation of a book series where the film actually comes nowhere near to the book. Has anyone had that experience? Yeah. Have you watched one of these movie adaptations deviate so much from the storyline that the book actually no longer makes, or deviate from the storyline of the book that it actually no longer makes any sense? Uh, for me, it was watching the final instalment of the Harry Potter films. Anyone else a Harry Potter fan? I definitely am. Uh, and it was 
witnessing this big showdown between Harry and Voldemort. In the books, the entire series was leading up to this moment. Uh, all the twists and turns of the story, all the shocks and surprises, all of the mysteries um, that were leading up to this final confrontation that the readers had been waiting for for years and years. And I remember when the final book was released in stores. I don't know if anyone was a part of this experience, but actually waiting for that final book to come out, lining up, going to get it, and reading it as one of millions around the world because it was released at the exact same time all over the world. And so you knew that you were one of many, many, many being, like, unravelling this mystery and this end to this amazing uh, journey collectively together and finding out finally how this mystery was going to be solved. How this climax was going to come to pass. And it was quite a remarkable event because these six books were leading up to this final moment. And the mystery was finally going to be revealed. And the end of the adventure did not disappoint. The wait was completely worth it. All of the questions, all of the complexities were solved in a sophisticated and inspirational way that captured the imagination of millions. It was amazing. And then the movie came out. Now, I'm 100% a movie person, probably even more than I am a book person. And I even love watching movies, even if they are a bit of a bad adaptation of the written counterpart. I can be pretty forgiving. But the Harry Potter one was just a bit disappointing. And the problem is because in the end, Harry actually overpowers Voldemort in the movie. And the problem with that representation is that in the books, the entire series was actually about how Harry could not overpower Voldemort. And in fact, the storyline was that Voldemort ultimately defeated himself because he underestimated the power of things like love and friendship and self-sacrifice. Harry could not overpower Voldemort with sheer force. That was the whole point. So then when the book came out, sorry, when the movie came out and deviated from that storyline, it no longer made sense. Now the book and the movie both portrayed Voldemort's defeat, but how that defeat came about was very different. And it really impacted the meaning of that victory over evil. Now if you've only seen the movie, you probably don't realise why this is such a big deal. But for lovers of the books, this deviation from the storyline was so frustrating because it meant that the movie completely missed the point. I remember after watching the final movie in the cinemas, I had a long and passionate discussion with my husband who hadn't read the books, explaining exactly how the movie missed the point and why the book was so much better things and nods. I'm sure other people are uh, relating to this experience. 
What I'm going to suggest to you today is that often our understanding of what happened to Jesus on the cross is a movie adaptation that deviates from the storyline of the book. A lot of the imagery and meaning that we attach to the death of Jesus takes the story in a completely different direction. And it actually leads to us missing the point. Now, I'm aware that's a big claim. But just as I did with Michael with the Harry Potter, I'm hopefully going to explain how our understanding can miss the point and how the story is so much better. So, we are going to look at and address some commonly held beliefs that arise from Jesus' death. And then I'm going to present some alternative ways of understanding what God was doing. And at this point, I really want to acknowledge the many scholars, historians and theologians that have wrestled with these biblical themes to ensure we truly understand the significance of this event in history and what it means for us today. Feeling all right? Not too worried? Okay. The first point that we're going to look at today is not sacrifice, but surrender. Now, the New Testament authors are pretty clear about understanding Jesus' death on the cross as a kind of sacrifice. But what's really important to understand is that the language around sacrifice is metaphoric. Metaphors, as I'm sure you're aware, are about talking about a new thing with language that is familiar. So when we think about Jesus' death, we actually need to properly contextualise it within history. Many thousands of people were brutally executed by crucifixion within the provinces of the Roman Empire. This was a common thing. It was a death, though, that was particularly reserved for those who aimed to threaten the ways of empire. And examples are Jewish zealots or assassins who tried to take down the empire through stealth and violence. And these are actually likely to be the two people who died either side of Jesus, these types of people. And Jesus died as one such revolutionary at the hands of the empire. But to those who followed Jesus, they recognised that something else was going on. It wasn't just an execution. There was also some kind of underlying meaning. And using the language familiar to ancient Roman and Jewish communities at the time, the authors of the New Testament Gospels and letters presented this death as a sacrifice. Now, for centuries, theologians have attempted to decode this sacrificial language to work out exactly how Jesus' death saves us. Some of these insights were particularly helpful. Others were quite damaging. And just like the Harry Potter movie adaptation actually deviate from the story and completely miss the point. 
things start to get complicated when we start to over-literalise metaphoric language and we make it about something that it's not. The other week, Michael and I were watching the first episode of Moon Knight. Anyone else watched Moon Knight? No? <laughs> I'm total Marvel nerd, we both are. Um, there was one scene where one of the main antagonists uh, makes an observation about the main character. He grabs his hands and he goes in this really serious way, there is chaos in you, like this. And then Michael gasped and immediately turned to me and said, do you know what that's a reference to? I'm like, what? He's like, he's talking about chaos magic. It's the magic that Scarlet Witch has. And you don't need to know anything about that. But the idea is that that word chaos, in the context of this segment of the broader Marvel storyline, acts as a kind of hyperlink. And it connects to a range of ideas and stories that are related to Marvel and its narrative. The context of the Marvel narrative also provides boundaries for how this word is to be interpreted, but it also provides limitations in its meaning. We can't force meaning on this concept that doesn't belong there. It's only from the 11th century onwards that the most popular way of understanding Jesus' death was that he gave his life as a sacrifice in order to pay the price for our sins. This approach is called the satisfaction theory of the atonement. And it was developed by a guy called Anselm of Canterbury in the 11th century. He was a theologian who was living in a feudal society, lords and peasants. And the idea is, is that humans have rebelled because of sin, have dishonoured their lord who is God. Uh, and because God is so holy and so perfect, the debt is so big that we cannot possibly repay it. And so Jesus dies as a sacrifice to repay this debt. Now, this idea develops further in the 16th century with the emergence of the Protestant movement and this time takes on the metaphor of a courtroom. Humans have sinned against God and have been pronounced guilty. And because God is holy and perfect, the only response to sin is death and eternal punishment. Humans can't possibly make this right. We stand accused, we're named guilty, and are deserving of punishment and death. But Jesus pays the price as a sacrifice. A truly innocent man is punished to pay the penalty for sin we have committed. He stands in our place, taking the death we deserve, and satisfies the wrath of God because of the blood of Jesus who can now forgive us. Now, I'm sure you're familiar with this language and imagery being used to understand the meaning of Jesus' death and how it saves us from the punishment of sin. But there are some problems with this sacrificial metaphor being taken too far. 
And at this point, we actually need to ask some questions. Why can't God just forgive us? God asks us to forgive others of their wrongdoings against us without condition. Why can't God do that? What kind of God requires the most innocent person ever to die in order to forgive everyone? Does this mean that God endorses human sacrifice as a way of redeeming us? And does this mean that we are on the side of that human sacrifice? These are some pretty heavy and confronting questions. And they start to poke some holes in the way that this sacrificial language is used. But these questions are necessary. Because when we read about Jesus' life and ministry in the Gospels and in the context of the broader biblical narrative, the story of a vengeful God requiring sacrifice in order to be able to forgive is actually not the story the Gospels tell. That representation of the cross is the movie adaptation version that deviates from the book. So, if that's not what's happening, then what is? What else might be going on with this crucifixion event? What I'm going to suggest to you is that what Jesus did on the cross was not so much about sacrifice as it was about surrender. One of the most dangerous things we can do to our understanding of what Jesus did on the cross is to divorce his death from his life. And if we are to truly understand why Jesus died and why his death was significant, it is imperative that we contextualize it within his mission, his ministry, and his understanding of what was happening to him. When we piece these together, we actually see that Jesus did not set out to die. That was not the mission. Otherwise, why didn't he simply just offer himself up to the Romans as soon as he became conscious of that necessity? No, Jesus had another mission. And dedication to that mission came with consequences. Consequences that Jesus chose to surrender to. Death on a cross orchestrated by religious rigidity and carried out at the hands of the empirical power. So what was this mission that cost Jesus his life? My next point, not the cross, but the kingdom. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here and potentially present myself as a bit of a heretic, maybe even more than what I have already. But I'm actually going to suggest to you that today of all days, 
we should not be focusing on the cross. We should be focusing on the kingdom. Because bringing about the kingdom of earth, a kingdom of God on earth as in heaven, is, was Jesus' primary goal. Jesus began his ministry in Galilee by declaring that the kingdom of God had come near. His mission was defined by bringing the kingdom, particularly to those who had been excluded and cast out from any other means of participating in the community of God. Those who were disabled, those who were sick, those who were plagued by spiritual forces, those who were of the wrong gender, of the wrong ethnicity, all of these people were categorically rejected and barred from attending the temple and any other place of worship. And it is to these people that Jesus declared, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Jesus came with a radical message, declaring that in a world defined by religious legalism or empirical status, that the kingdom in fact is for everyone. Even those deemed unworthy by the systems of the day because God loves everyone. So the question is, how did someone who preached love and inclusion end up as an enemy of the state? How did someone who stood against violence and oppression end up being violently executed? Did Jesus see his death as necessary for the kingdom to be revealed? The key to our understanding is in the days leading up to Jesus' arrest and execution, and this is often referred to as Passion Week. And up until this point, the gospel accounts tell us that Jesus was mostly in Galilee, a region sort of south of Judea. But leading up to the cross event, Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem, the very heart of the Jewish faith, due to the fact that the temple was located there. Now, last week, we heard about Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, an event which we call Palm Sunday, and that in and of itself turned things upside down. But it's what happens next that unequivocally seals Jesus' fate. After entering the city gates, Jesus goes straight for the jugular of the Jewish tradition, the temple. And in a fit of passionate rage, storms into where the religious leaders were selling animals for sacrifice at exorbitant prices in order to rip off the poor and the vulnerable. And he goes in and he hurls these tables over. Money and birds and all sorts of things flying everywhere. And he shouts, this place that is meant to connect people to the presence of God, this place that is meant to represent God, you have turned into a place of exclusion and exploitation. What happens next is remarkable. He immediately turns around and the Gospels tell us that he heals the blind and the lame. The very people who were banned from ever setting foot in that temple. 
by those who had seen themselves as the gatekeepers of the presence of God. Jesus' mission of the kingdom was to confront the economic, political, social and spiritual exploitation of the people of God to remove the boundaries and the categories that kept people away from God and to protest against the systems that oppressed and dehumanised people within an empire that was only concerned with power. Jesus knew what he was doing. Riding into Jerusalem, the gospel writers tell us he wept. He knew what needed to be done. He saw what was going on. And he certainly would have been fully aware of the consequences of his actions. Exposing the corruption of the religious leaders in the centre of that Jewish tradition well and truly put a target on his back. But Jesus was committed to the kingdom, the will and the purposes of God. And that may mean death. It may not. It is not death itself that was the goal. He was not seeking death. He was seeking the reign and rule of God in all things. Jesus prayed for the cup of death to be removed, but the kingdom of God was not negotiable even if it leads to death, even to death on a cross. Now, the really confronting part, and you're probably thinking, not another one, um, but the really confronting part is that Jesus actually implores his followers to follow his example. His understanding of the kingdom was to deny oneself, to take up the cross and follow him. It is not that God demanded the death of Jesus as a penalty for sin. It is rather that Jesus comes to the realisation that his faithfulness to the kingdom of God will likely mean his death. Jesus will drink the bitter cup if that is the only way to remain faithful to the kingdom of God and it is in this way that Jesus understands his own death not to be only for himself but also for others. And in the words of Mark, Jesus' death is a ransom for many because the power of the kingdom is unleashed in the world and will transform history. The kingdom is for everyone. So if Jesus' death isn't a penalty for sin, then what does this mean for us? How can we understand our salvation in the context of what we've just discussed? This is my final point. Not retribution, but redemption. If we hold to an idea that God required and even foreordained Jesus' death as atonement for sin, arising out of the justice and the wrath of God, we are 
dangerously close to suggesting that our salvation is bought through retributive violence. In other words, Jesus must accept a violent, brutal punishment on behalf of our wrongdoings in order for God to forgive us. But for a God whose kingdom is about radical inclusion, radical forgiveness, acceptance and love that protests against economic, social, political and spiritual injustice and exploitation that degrades and dehumanises people. The image of a violent death as a requirement for salvation just does not fit. In fact, I would go as far as saying it is an idea that dangerously deviates from the message of the Gospels and the message of the Kingdom. Instead, the Gospels present the idea that the death of Jesus is the result of human decisions. It was humanity's idolatry of social, political and religious institutions at the expense of people that put Jesus on the cross. The theology around retributive violence as a means of salvation actually reflects more of humanity's answers to the world's problems, not God's. We are the ones that require the sacrifice of others in order to keep the so-called peace. We are the ones that offer up, or at the very least ignore, the weak and the vulnerable for the sake of being able to hoard our own power and our own resources. Jesus does not do that. Jesus gives everything, even his own life. And because he believed in a kingdom that had the power to disrupt and destroy this cycle of retributive violence that we so often find ourselves in and justify as necessary. But how does that work? A major way that the New Testament describes Jesus' death on the cross is that it was part of the redemptive work of God in history. A part of it. The purpose of God is to act redemptively in the world. And God is so committed to that purpose that even the worst case scenario, the death of Jesus, could not dissuade him. When human beings had done their worst, God still found a way to be gracious and redemptive, even to the point of turning this horrific deed of humanity into an act of redemption. The death of Jesus becomes redemptive because God chooses to make it so. Human beings can kill Jesus, but only God can make his death into an act of salvation. For God so loved the world. I get the
in a few minutes, I'm going to invite you to take communion. And then we'll wrap the service up. But as we take communion, I want to invite you to see the symbols of the bread and the cup in two ways. Firstly, let's allow these symbols to remind us of what we have been redeemed from. Not sin that separates us from God, nor punishment that is required for our salvation, but a cycle of retributive violence that we so often find ourselves justifying as necessary for keeping the peace in our world. Let's ask God to reveal to us where we might be participating in that cycle, who we might be excluding or overlooking. And in the love and the grace and the dedication to redemption that is extended to us in the example of the cross, let's ask God for forgiveness. And then secondly, let's allow these symbols to remind us of what we have been redeemed for. Not to escape from our present reality, but to transform it. By following in the footsteps of the one who committed his life so wholeheartedly to God's kingdom that it cost him everything. But in facing that cross, he had every hope that God would act redemptively despite the death of his son. Let's ask God to reveal to us where we can more boldly and courageously bring about his kingdom in our world. And this Good Friday, let's allow